Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And as luck would have it, I'm today in New York in Times Square looking out at a NASDAQ tape going across right in front of me in the window outside. So we're in the heart of capitalism as we start this discussion today. So. Uh, let's get on with it. Wonderful. Well, I'm delighted uh, to introduce our guest today. Uh, David Gallus uh, is a columnist uh, uh, at the New York Times, the corner office columnist where he talks to uh, leaders. He is also a reporter on the climate desk there. And he's previously written on the mergers and acquisitions for DealBook. Uh, he spent five years with the uh, Financial Times uh, before that. Um, and uh, he uh, actually is one of the people who interviewed Bernie Madoff. Uh, when he was in prison. So David has had an incredible journey and uh, set of experiences uh, as a business reporter. And he has just completed and about to publish this book, The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America and How to Undo His Legacy. And you know, this is one of the most uh, profound and impactful books that I've read in a very, very long time. Now, once I started reading it, I simply could not put it down. Of course, it's it's beautifully written, as one might expect from a New York Times writer, uh, but also the content is incredibly important. And in light of what we do here, uh, think about it, conscious capitalism, I think this kind of is a bit of perspective setting. You know, it zooms out and looks at this 40-year uh, period uh, around the time when Jack Welch became CEO and how that marked a sea change not only for General Electric, but ultimately for American capitalism and therefore global capitalism, kind of the beginning of a new chapter. So we're delighted to welcome uh, David here today to talk about his book and have a conversation about where we have come from and where we are headed in this uh, epic journey of uh, capitalism. So welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. You know, when I was uh, thinking about Jack Welch, you know, and I, I came to this country as an adult, I was here as a, as a child for a few years, but I came back when I was 23 in 1981, in September in New York, right, to get my PhD at uh, Columbia. And that pretty much coincides with when Jack Welch became CEO of, uh, of uh, General Electric. And then, you know, the next 20 years were kind of one phase of my career where I was somewhat beholden to the old paradigm. And that's all we knew and that's all we were taught, right? Business is about shareholder value and, you know, bosses and leaders like Jack Welch were, uh, you know, put on this tremendous pedestal. I remember Fortune naming him as the CEO of the millennium or maybe the century, you know, around the time, the uh, turn of the century. And so, you know, everything that he did was kind of seen as, as, the, as the playbook for everybody. And slowly, I think we started to come out of that and I remember being at a, at a dinner party with a group of friends who worked at, at companies. They were executives in companies. And, and I was thinking about this idea, well, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be a boss? You know, and, and the word boss, of course, derives from slavery. It comes from the Dutch word boss, which means master, right? But we use it routinely and everybody is described as somebody's boss. And, and this whole mindset, I was, I was asking the question, does a boss, B-O-S-S, equal an S-S-O-B? You know, like a, uh, you know, a, uh, a son of a bitch, you know, essentially super son of a bitch in, in that sense. That that's kind of our cultural norm. And they all said to a person, yes, that's what a boss is supposed to be. And that's how they are. You know, being a professor, I've never had that kind of experience, you know. So I think that was kind of the milieu, you know, that, uh, that we were operating in. So, so how, how did you get interested, uh, David, in uh, writing about Jack Welch? Take us to, uh, back to that beginning of this project. Well, thank you again so much for having me. And what you just said, I think, is, is exactly the association 
that I hope this project and I hope work that you all are doing is going to help undo. Because bosses don't have to be SSOBs. But for the longest time, that is exactly how we've seen them. Uh, and that's ultimately what we're talking about here and ultimately how we move forward from it. So the way I began this journey was, as you mentioned, I've been a reporter at the New York Times and the Financial Times covering business for more than a decade now. And in all that time, one name kept coming up. In my interviews with CEOs, I kept hearing a name, and it was not a man that I had ever had the opportunity to cover because he had retired by the time I became a business journalist, but of course it was Welch. And some CEOs would define themselves in opposition to him, recognizing that the model he set, the example he set, was one that for a variety of different ways, they did not want to perpetuate. They didn't want to do exactly what he did. And some of them were more or less articulate in the ways they could describe exactly how they were a little uncomfortable with his playbook and the legacy he set. And others, however, were still, even to this day, trying to emulate him and holding him up as a paragon of modern management excellence. To this day, this man who retired more than 20 years ago seem to be living rent-free in the minds of America's CEOs. And so that just got in my head. And I said, how is it that this one man could still be exerting so much influence on so many CEOs? And that question was bugging me. And then I found a story that brought it all home. I was part of the team at the New York Times that covered the aftermath of the two Boeing 737 MAX crashes. And when we began investigating the story of what had happened inside Boeing, it very quickly became clear that while there was an engineering story to be told, and we can talk about that in more depth, there was also a cultural story to be told. And that cultural story is ultimately the story of how Jack Welch shaped not only GE, but so many other companies, including Boeing. And when those two things were both in the present of my mind, I said, this is the book. This is the way we can understand not only who this man was and the influence he had, but where we are in this moment of our collective journey in, in trying to create a more equitable economy. I remember you quoted somebody at uh, Boeing saying that uh, they've brought in a culture of financial bullshit, right? It was not about safety and engineering. And of course, there were two uh, Jack Welch disciples at the heart of that story, right? Harry uh, Stonecipher, who was at McDonnell Douglas first, and then they got merged and he became, uh, uh, I think, the president or CEO at Boeing. And then, of course, uh, Jim McNerney as well. So, yeah, that that cancer kind of spread uh, into many, many iconic American corporations. So we will, we will come back to that, I think. But let's go back to the sort of the origin stories here. But before we talk about Jack himself, I mean, you have... Uh, interesting framing in the book, you talk about the uh, golden age of American capitalism, which I haven't seen that phrase used. I do know that, you know, the times of the post-war decades were a time of boom in America, partly because our main global competitors were decimated, right? In part, we didn't have Germany and Japan to contend with for quite a while. Uh, but beyond that, there was kind of a rootedness that companies had in their communities. There was a there was a genuine stakeholder mindset. People were paid well. Executives were paid modestly, right? There was a an onus uh, premium uh, placed on loyalty, uh, and there was a pride in being a good citizen, a good corporate citizen, right? So, so if you could elaborate a little bit more on that, uh, the golden age of capitalism, and, and how golden was it? What, what was missing from that that we would want to see today? I think it's important to know what was missing because it was not perfect in the post-war years. Uh, we did not understand as a society, and certainly the business community did not fully grasp the implications of climate change and the imperative to run our businesses in a sustainable way. Many minority communities were marginalized and did not participate in the collective wealth generation. Uh, women were not fully integrated into the workforce in a meaningful way. So I do not think we can completely romanticize the post-war years and say everything was going okay. And yet, at a broad level, the incentives were aligned in a way that they simply are not today. When companies did well, workers did well. When workers did well, communities did well. And when communities did well, American families did well. And what's so striking, if you go back and review the literature 
even just the annual reports from major corporations, including GE, from these years, they proudly talk about how much money they are spending on taxes. They brag about how much money they're spending on taxes. They do the opposite today. Big companies would boast about how much they're paying their suppliers. They wore it as a badge of honor when they had the biggest payroll in their company's history. And so, as you said, Raj, the ethos was just fundamentally different. You had a spirit of collective uh, goodwill and the understanding, as you said, that when the corporations of this country were going to succeed, the country was going to do well. And what was good for the country was good for corporate America and vice versa. And I don't need to tell you guys, that's just not simply the world we live in today. So when you think about that, David, I mean, are there a couple touch points that you think of as sort of like these were turning points? We may not have known it at the time, but there were things that were happening that were starting to shift that way of thinking and the validity of the underlying assumptions. Without a doubt. And it was it was a journey. And I make the case in the book that it was largely an intellectual journey, an academic journey for roughly the 70s. And several things started to happen at once. You had in the United States stagflation. So the economy began to stagnate, growth started to stagnate, inflation was on the rise, and that put real and valid constraints on growth, on profitability, which we cannot ignore or dispute, and which, of course, people are worried we're getting close to again today. Other things were happening at the same time as well. In Europe, the post-war economy that was largely uh, the, you know, the product of the Keynesian vision, where the government was going to sort of use its power to shape and regulate the economy was being called into question uh, and, and perhaps for good reason. And so you had the Montpellerin Society with men like Friedrich Hayek beginning to rethink what is the role of corporations in society and what is the role the business should play in the regulation of corporations. And then, of course, there was a man named Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, the economist from the University of Chicago, famously came out and in an essay in the New York Times magazine, made the explicit case that it was not the role of businesses to play a role in thinking about the well-being of society, but that the duty of a business was to maximize its profits. That was the intellectual framework that was starting to shift during the 1970s. And yet there's a difference between talking about something writing papers about something, and actually doing it. And it was only, I argue, when Welch became CEO of General Electric, that you had a man, not only with the mindset, but also with the means and the conviction to make good on some of these radical revisions in the way he believed businesses should operate. Yeah, and then, of course, you also had the further academic uh, support, in a way, with Jensen and Meckling and Agency Theory, and, and, you know, creating all the theoretical foundations around uh, legitimizing the notion of a single objective function, that shareholder value is the only thing, that uh, managers are agents on behalf of the owners of the business, and those owners are shareholders, and therefore their loyalty is to the shareholders, which is a fundamental misreading, right? Because shareholders don't pay the salary of, of, of executives, the company does. And therefore, the flourishing of that company is, is their role. But this was you know, it kind of created a whole intellectual scaffolding that would allow people then to swing all the way to the other extreme. And, and then along comes, of course, uh, Jack Welch. Now, before we talk about him, talk about General Electric a little bit. I mean, this company we all know is founded by uh, Thomas Edison and has kind of that DNA of uh, innovation, um, incredible innovation. And uh, I was I thought I knew what GE had meant to American and, and modern life, but but you write about that, right? What this company was responsible for uh, in our lives. Can you talk about GE a little bit and its legacy before Welch? It's truly hard to overstate the degree to which General Electric was part of the foundation of not only the modern American economy, but our modern way of life. Beyond the light bulb and our electric infrastructure, power lines and transmission lines and power generation facilities, GE very quickly began developing and producing and selling appliances, refrigerators, 
toasters, radios, televisions, x-ray machines. You look around your house and GE was the first company to, to bring to market many of the modern technological marvels that we simply take for granted even to this day. That was just the consumer. You then look at their role in the nation's transportation infrastructure, locomotives they were making, jet engines. They had the engines on the wings of the planes that started flying coast to coast. So you think about the modern aviation age, it's not possible without GE. And then you think about some of our country's seminal achievements and accomplishments in the middle and in the late part of the 20th century, the victory in World War II, our ability to put men on the moon. You go back and you read those histories and GE engineers are at the table. You go back and watch video of the moon landing and at NASA headquarters in Houston, there's rows and rows and rows of GE engineers. It was their computing prowess. It was their technological know-how that allowed so many of these things to happen. So there's just no way to overstate the role of this company in our country's history. And so that is one of the great tragedies of this story in a way is that if you look at all the companies that swung to the shareholder side, that innovation was one of the biggest casualties. I mean, I frankly cannot think of a major innovation that has happened in the last 40 years uh, that came from GE, you know, and they had the largest labs and they had the resources, you know, they had that tremendous legacy, but that's, that is something, uh, you know, precious that gets lost. And that without that, we don't have a future, right? Without innovation, we don't have a future. So we are really, in a, in a sense, living off of the past and milking the past in order to, uh, you know, to, to uh, reward today's shareholders. If I could just go back and talk about that period of transition and, and the response to stagflation, right? Because you said it, there, there were global competitors on the rise. Um, it was a moment where, yes, things did need to change in the US economy. And what you just said was 100% right. We needed more innovation, but we got more consolidation. We needed more research and development. Instead, we plowed so much of that money back towards shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends, and back to executives in the form of these gargantuan executive compensation plans. So there was an opportunity to recapture that American innovative spirit that defined GE in the first part of the 20th century, and we missed the ball at the moment we needed it most. Yeah, it feels like a hostile takeover of the entire system on behalf of one stakeholder, right? The financial side, the, the shareholders and the executives. Well, let's back off now and uh, talk about Jack Welch. So here's this kid growing up in, uh, I think, Peabody, Mass, right? Uh, a, a short, aggressive, uh, uh, pugnacious, you know, kind of character, right? Growing up in this family. And I was fascinated to read about his mother's influence. So if you can just talk about Jack the child and, and how that became Jack the man. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but um, the the influence that his parents had on him is, is is relatively well documented. And he spoke about at least his mother's influence on, on him in some detail over the years. Um, she was very religious. She instilled in him a deep competitive streak. She was tough on him. She famously made him play poker with his allowance money. So he learned you know, what it meant to win and lose money at a very early age. Uh, she made him an altar boy, so he was he, he he developed a close relationship with the Catholic faith. But in a way, you know, when I after reading so many pages and books about Welch and reading just about everything he had written over the years, it was less his mother than his father that I kept thinking about, and it was his father who was largely absent. He did not have a close relationship with his father by all accounts, um, but his father was a train conductor, sort of a blue collar worker, a unionized man. And it strikes me that when you look at Welch's influence on workers in this country, it's hard to say this, but it was men like his father who suffered the most. And it was hard for me not to see some, some symmetry in that, some deeper view of, of how he responded to his childhood and how that might have informed his work as an executive. Yeah, you know, it, it hits me, David, in, in reflecting on that, that at some level, he was a quintessential American success story. You know, the blue-collar kid who goes off to university, graduates, gets a good job, and then moves his way up 
to be the CEO. And um, yet along the way, there's something that he absorbed about a mindset about business that, um, you know, we'll get to it in a moment because I had some personal experience with him early in my consulting experience. Um, but what, what did you think were some of the seminal moments in his business career that started because it wasn't like he came from an intellectual family and he's sitting around debating Hayek and the Hayek Society and, you know, and even Milton Friedman, but, you know, but something influenced him in his business career. Do you have any insight on that? It's important to note that Welch was incredibly smart. By all accounts, he was among the quickest minds in the room. He was a ferociously intense worker who often knew more about the business lines than the people who were working for him and running these businesses. So I don't at all want to underestimate um, Jack as a really sharp and incisive executive. And that was proven out over the course of his career. But when you think about how he became the force that he did and how he ultimately wielded the influence he did and where some of those seminal experiences come from, well, he talks about them in his book and they're, they're relatively well documented over the years. And they start even before he was uh, in business. He, as a young boy, um, was famously pugnacious. You know, as a, as a golf caddy in his local golf course, uh, at one time, the man he was caddying for hit a ball into the pond and told Welch to go get it. Welch threw his clubs into the pond, told him to go to hell, and stormed off the golf course. So you can see this was a fiery kid from the get-go. And that continued right into his very first years at GE, which, of course, was the first company he worked for. When he learned that uh, other people in his group, his contemporaries, were getting a $1,000 raise, just like he was getting a $1,000 raise, he quit because he thought he was doing better. And so again, there's that pugnacious spirit, uh, the, the, uh, the unwillingness to essentially feel like he was being talked down to or, or minimized or unappreciated. And then I think about one final instance early in his career when he blew up a factory. He was running a, a, a plastics factory in Massachusetts and he had pushing his team hard and essentially told him to sort of skirt the rules and do whatever it was needed to use some highly volatile processes to try to rush through an innovation that might turn into a breakthrough. And the factory blew up and it's a miracle and a blessing that no one was injured severely, no one was killed. But when he messed up, and that's a colossal mess up by just about any standard, he wasn't able to recognize that he had really made a mistake. Instead, he was able to internalize it and essentially, from his own perspective, see the merit, frankly, in getting away with it. And so the lesson to him from that experience was that he could blow stuff up and get away with it. And I think that was an instructive moment as he went on and wreaked so much destruction across GE's own factories, shutting them down en masse over the years. Yeah. Well, I got exposed to him, I guess I was, I was thinking back on it, 1986. I'm a young consultant. I'm a, an associate on a study, and we're looking at uh, whether GE should shut down this the Sarnoff Laboratory semiconductor, which when they had bought RCA, they'd bought all these semiconductor technologies, particularly some Radhard, which meant military-ready, space-ready. Um, and he was already known as Neutron Jack at that point. And so we began our presentation with a, a picture of the plant and then boom, <laughs> a neutron bomb. So, um, oh boy. <laughs> so we already, you know, he already had that reputation about that. But what hit me in that, it, you know, in that interaction of our making the presentation was how he had a couple of competing executives who were arguing on both sides, you know, different sides of the why this was good for the long term and innovation and other things. Somebody else saying, you know, short term, can't see us making any money and blah, blah, blah. And it was just, uh, I came away brutalized from the discussion. I just felt like he just kept saying, but he just contradicted you. How are you, you know, stand up and be a man. <laughs> it was, it was brutal. It was like, I want you guys to really fight it out. And then when you fought it out, then I'll make a decision about what I think. And it felt like there was blood on the floor when we were finished. And, uh, and yes, they did blow it up. 
but I came away, I came away feeling, you know, in 1986, this is really, I don't, you know, this is the famous Jack Welch and, um, and something inside of me said, this just isn't the right way of doing business. Um, and yet he went on to, you know, 86 was the very beginning of, of his reputation of being a quote unquote, great CEO. And, um, you know, there is this question, how much of it was a mirage? How much of it was real? Um, and and what was his reputation built on in that stage? Because by the 90s, he walked on water and talked to God as a businessman. But it was built on what he did in the 80s. And do you have a perspective on that in terms of um, what was real and what was, you know, maybe lucky? <laughs> There's no doubt that he terrorized not only his colleagues, but also his competitors into submission. And- uh, there's a quote in the book that says, Welch conducts meetings, and you saw this firsthand, Welch conducts meetings so aggressively that people tremble. He attacks almost physically with his intellect, criticizing, demeaning, ridiculing, humiliating. Uh, one employee said, Jack comes on like a herd of elephants. If you have a contradictory idea, you have to be willing to take the guff to put it forward. And the last one in the same section I quote was, working for him is like war. A lot of people get shot up and the survivors go on to the next battle. So there's no doubt, Timothy, that in these early years, especially in the 80s, part of the way that he essentially created his mystique was by creating, building a culture of fear where you could dissent with him, but you had to be ready to fight for your life if you were going to do it. And that fear-based leadership, I think you both know deeply and from decade, more than a decade of experience working on conscious capitalism by now, it is the kind of culture that can produce, you know, in the short term, sort of extraordinary results because people are so petrified that they may go above and beyond. But it is precisely the thing that does not build long-term value that does not create a long-term healthy innovative culture so if we look at welch's early years uh, reginald jones was the ceo before him kind of this patrician englishman and in that tradition of the ceo as a statesman especially the ceo of a company like a ge or somebody at ibm etc they were kind of at that level right but then you know welch's rapid ascent and his ability to deliver the numbers wherever he went at a time when GE's profits were good, but not, you know they were not growing very fast, et cetera. And so that became kind of seductive, I think, to Reginald Jones. And he was a kind of bit of a dark horse surprise choice uh, and, uh, and became the CEO and then started developing what you call his playbook. And I think each of those elements, let's just talk a little bit about that, right? I th- you mentioned downsizing, deal-making, financialization, and I would say share buybacks as, as part of that as well. Uh, so let's talk about each of those, the essential elements of the Jack Welch approach, which of course then was replicated by the entire Jack Welch uh, tree of you know all the people out there. At one time, I think five of the, the down 30 industrials were run by Welch protégés and many other uh, big companies were as well. So let's talk about each of those downsizing. You know, was the 80s, as, I, as far as I recall, was the first time in the history of this country that we started using, companies started using layoffs, mass layoffs as a way of improving their financial numbers, not as an existential response, you know, to, uh, to potential, uh, you know, a company dying, but actually just as a way to massage the numbers. So can we talk about his, his whole philosophy on downsizing, the reason he became Neutron Jack, the so-called campaign against loyalty, right? a key element of this. He came to the CEO role in 1981, convinced that GE needed to be a smaller company and also a larger, bigger, more profitable company. He understood these two things to be fundamentally at odds with each other. He wanted a smaller workforce, and he believed that that was going to be a good in its own right. And so in the early years, He set about methodically, systemically, finding ways to shrink GE's headcount. He did that in a number of ways. As you said, he was among the first to use mass layoffs as a tool to boost 
corporate profitability with the simple equation that fewer people on the payroll were going to free up more free cash flow and there would just be more profits to pile back to investors when the time came. But that wasn't enough. He also systematized it. He essentially made it a religion inside the company with the, what he called the vitality curve, which I find a, a charmingly euphemistic phrase to describe forced layoffs, but which a lot of people uh, rightly called rank and yank. Rank and yank was a simple process. You sort all your people into A, B, and C players. And the C players, who make up roughly 10% of the sort, sort of a forced curve, they get fired every year. And so all of a sudden, at a company with hundreds of thousands of employees, you had 10% of the employee base mandatory being let go every year. So now we're talking about a situation where there are tens of thousands of layoffs every year as a mandate. But that was only the beginning because he understood he couldn't fire his way to profitability. He couldn't fire people and still become the most valuable company of all time. So he took to other means, notably outsourcing and offshoring. And when you think about the move from in-house employees doing a whole variety of works to the much more specialized economy we live in today, where there are really knowledge workers and high high tech industrial workers inside a company like GE, and then service workers at big service providing companies doing janitorial functions and security functions and food service functions. He was one of the first to identify the promise of that and go after it religiously. Lastly, outsourcing, I mentioned, we know what that is. He was the champion of it. He was the first to really understand that if he could spend money and he would have to spend some, closing down a factory in Ohio, putting that equipment on a series of locomotives, sending it across the border to Mexico, and he could be paying people 10 cents, 30 cents on the dollar uh, over the next many years. That was a winning bet for him. And so you saw the mass outsourcing of workers under Jack Welch. That's what I call downsizing. It's not just layoffs. It's also the outsourcing and the offshoring as well. I think you quote him as saying that ideally every factory should be on a barge. So we can just move it around anywhere in the world right, where we can find cheaper labor. And so this was a very, very corrosive, of course, to the culture as well. When, when you know that you're going to get ranked and then 10% are going to get fired, you're not as likely to help your colleagues on their projects, right? So it removes all the cooperation that, that is essential. For- Truly. And we'll, we'll talk more about his legacy, I know. But Rankin Yank still is going on today. Yeah. Microsoft was using Rankin Yank for years under Steve yeah. Ballmore, and it created massive cultural problems in, yeah. in Redmond. And even more recently, when Adam Newman was scaling WeWork so crazily a few years ago, in the WeWork books, they talk about that Adam Newman himself viewed Rankin Yank as a necessary tool to prune WeWork's headcount, even when this company had however many hundreds of billions of dollars in venture capital and was growing like weed. He yeah. still viewed it as a good thing to be firing people in its own right. Well, you know, that, that's one of the things that I found so confounding in the 90s and even into the early 2000s that Jack Welch's approach to people and leadership was held up as iconic. You know, Crotonville and the number, you know, that GE was the CEO engine and Crotonville was this incredible example of state-of-the-art, best in the world, best class leadership development. And people were holding up the HR system that was allowing that 10% every year to live in fear. And as, again, you know, an iconic, this is what HR should be. This is how we should manage, um, manage people. How did that happen that we held that up? I mean, what today sounds so counterintuitive, um, yet at the time, Crotonville was the place everybody wanted to emulate. We can't lose sight of the fact that in Jack's heyday, a lot of this worked in the short term, right? Jack Welch set out to make General Electric the most valuable company in the world, and he succeeded. For many years, GE was the literally the biggest market cap of any corporation on the globe. Now, we're going to talk more, I hope, about the financial games he was playing to make that happen. But there's we can't lose sight of the fact that in his heyday, in his prime, 
in the short term, some of this worked. And that I think is part of what makes his influence so difficult to break because in the short term, and you all know this, uh, you can play lots of games in the short term to make the numbers work, but it's in the long term, in the long term effects of the people, the communities, the economy at large, that we see the the true impact. And that uh, is, is devastating, frankly, when you look around our economy. So when you ask, how did he make it work? Well, because he was winning, right? He understood that this to be a game and he figured out how to master it and win it for many years. Yeah, and it kind of became a Ponzi scheme after a while just to keep it going, right? And then, so that brings us to the second element of the playbook, the deal-making, the kind of compulsive deal-making. I mean, it's one thing to rationalize your portfolio and say, you know, these businesses don't fit with our core competence and, you know, we need to bulk up here, et cetera. But this was a frenzied pace. Uh, I think 1,000 acquisitions in his 20 years as CEO. So that comes to one a week. Now, I know how long it takes to integrate even one merger, right? And the cultural things and all of the stuff that you have to do to be doing it at this pace. And I think he sold maybe three or 400 uh, during that time as well, right? So it was kind of a, and, and a lot of this was to add bulk, to add revenues, right? To become uh, to become bigger and bigger. But, but this was a massive restructuring of the entire economy because this became a widespread phenomenon, right? We had mergers and demergers at record numbers divestitures and mergers year after year after year, right? So, you know, we kind of reordered the landscape. And, you know, I, I, my colleague Jack Sheth and I had a little bit of a role in that because we wrote a book called The Rule of Three. And we talked about how industries, why and how industries end up with the big three, right? It used to be the big three automakers that we referred to as the big three, but it turns out there's a big three in virtually every sector, right? And there's some economic reasons why that structure tends to uh, dominate or be so commonly uh, uh, present. Uh, and also, of course, Welch had talked about being number one or number two in every business you're in. And we wrote about that in our book too, that number three is a precarious position. Right? So all of this was going on uh, in the backdrop, but, but the pace and the level at which General Electric did this was pretty extraordinary to the point where it became unrecognizable to some degree as a business, right? In terms of what they were and what they became. GE was an industrial company, obviously, when he took it over. Uh, GE was, if anything, perhaps a financial company, but really a conglomeration of media, industrial, healthcare, financial assets when he finally left the stage. And you said exactly why he was doing it, which was to make GE bigger at all costs. And so they would look for just about anywhere they could reasonably do. Uh, an add-on acquisition and get some accretive revenue and plug it in. And you mentioned how long it takes to integrate a company. Forget integration. What about doing due diligence on these companies? And so it often was the case, and I document some of these in real detail in the book, that they would make a deal hastily. He would brag about signing you know, one of the biggest deals of all time in a matter of, of days or weeks. You know, It took us an hour to make the decision, and then it was signed a week later. And then they would get their hands on this business and they would realize eh, this business has real problems. And so when the business has real problems, what do they start to do? How do they address it? They have mass layoffs. And so these, these, these parts of the playbook didn't exist in isolation. They all worked together. Downsizing and deal-making were essentially you know, different muscles in this same animal that the GE uh, you know, uh, beast became as it looked to grow ever larger, consume whatever it could, and hang on to only the best parts and spit out the rest, including the people. And then, of course, you have the tail wagging the dog, which is GE Capital, right? So behind the scenes, making it all possible and also making it possible for them to, in a way, massage the numbers to show whatever level of earnings they wanted to show just by moving things around or delaying or postponing or, or pre-booking certain sales, et cetera. So if you can talk about the third element, which is financialization, as you call it, and what a significant role that played. And ultimately that I think became kind of the Achilles heel that brought the whole structure down, right? Uh, Without a question. Yeah. The, and that is the third dark art. 
<laughs> what I call it, that he used in his quest to make GE the most valuable company of all time. And it was financialization. And that, that's a big term that I use to incorporate a, a lot of sometimes disparate uh, elements, but they all go back to the singular recognition that he had, which was that GE Capital was one of the most powerful tools at his disposal. And he, he recognized it even from the very early on. He said, this is the area where more change, quantum change is needed in the organization. And if we get it right, he understood it would unlock the key to just about everything else. And so what did that mean in practice? It meant that GE Capital, which was a division of the company that was originally used to provide short-term consumer loans, to help people pay for their refrigerator when they couldn't afford it all the way, to help big corporations spread out payments of large orders of big pieces of machinery, that this sort of benign unit, which was really focused on helping people get some of the products and services they most needed to run their homes and their companies, became the repository for all manner of dubious financial businesses in this moment, in this decade, the 1980s, where finance was the fastest growing part of the entire US economy. What did that look like? It looked like high interest credit cards. It looked like commercial real estate portfolios. And ultimately, as Welch and then Imelt kept adding more and more and more pieces to GE Capital, looking for incremental profits, incremental margins, wherever they could, adding on leasing businesses, whatever they could find, it led GE Capital to get into the subprime mortgage business in 2005 at just the wrong time. But when you think about a company that was founded on quality engineering, that whose finance division was focused on making loans to consumers, to think that it somehow ultimately had gotten into subprime mortgages, you can see the corrosive effect of this kind of thinking in really high relief. You know, I think it's fascinating because as you, as you point out in the book, you know, what did that leave Emmalt with when you know, Jack left? Like, what is his real legacy at, at that point? You know? And uh, you know, the, uh, over the years, you know, really the industrial part of the business really wasn't growing all that much <laughs> fundamentally. And most of the growth and the profit was coming from the capital side of the business. Um, and so Emmalt comes in, that transition, Say a little bit about that. The timing could not have been more dramatic. Jack Welch's last day as CEO of GE was September 8th, 2001. And so on September 11th, 2001, Jeff's second day as CEO, the terrorist attacks hit. And not only the American economy, but the global economy is plunged into crisis. And GE, which, again, still had an enormous diversity of businesses, was fundamentally exposed at just about every level. Its power turbines were suddenly not in demand with the prospect of a global recession on the horizon. All air travel could stop, so no one was going to be buying aircraft engines anytime soon. The threat of a recession made consumers start pinching pennies, and the appliances business was suddenly not what it once was. And GE Capital, which analysts didn't fully realize had become deeply enmeshed in the entire global financial system, was suddenly on the ropes. And there was an opportunity. And I talked to Imad about this. He went on the record for this book. We talked about that moment and the opportunity that he had in the months after 9-11 to really reset the company. Because I don't know if he really understood the depths of problems that were confronting him, but he understood that GE Capital was big and should probably get a little smaller. He understood that they needed to start investing in the industrial businesses. And just about every company on the street missed in those first quarters after 9-11. But GE had barely missed its earnings targets for 80 quarters in a row. Only once or twice in all of Jack's tenure did they miss. 
And Imel told me he didn't want to be the guy to miss. It was so seductive, was the word he used. Seductive. To use GE Capital to perform another flurry of last minute, last few days of the quarter transactions, shift some ones and zeros, sell a stake, take a charge, and just smooth out those numbers. That's the phrase they always used, earning smoothings, and make it work one more time. And he did it. And listen, as a result, GE Capital kept growing by something like an order of 50% bigger, getting 50% bigger in the first years after Imelt took over. And so this was the model, the precedent that Welch set, and it proved incredibly hard to break even for a CEO who understood that there was a different way to do business. You know, I find Jeff Imelt to be a fascinating story in his own right, because uh, here's a person on paper, he looks like the opposite of Welch in many ways. You know, and he had some instincts as some of the better angels of his nature struggling with, you know, being willing to actually uh, go in a different direction, right? I, I think you quote him somewhere saying, Jack left me a bag of shit right? in terms of the underlying fundamentals of the business. But, you know, around that same time that he became CEO, the book Good to Great came out. I think it was literally, you know, within days of that. And uh, he was quoted in Fortune uh, as saying, to be a great company, you have to be a good company. You have to be good for people. You have to be good for society. You have to be good for communities. You have to be good for the world. And that's a very different, you know, statement than anything that uh, that Jack would have made. And I'm sure he meant it at the time, and that was his intention. And he launched, of course, Eco Imagination, which which you know did kind of put a luster on 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 what GE was doing. Although I think you you, you label that as mostly greenwashing. So there wasn't a lot of substance to it. And then he got seduced back into the old way of doing things. He could not, and of course, Welch is out there, right? Very, very public, you know, visible figure uh, in American culture. So I think Jeff Immelt had a chance to carve his own way, but ultimately he bought in wholesale. I remember in one year, I think the, desperate to uh, shore up the share price, didn't he do 90 billion in share buybacks? One year during Astonishing his- figures, astonishing figures. Just like, like, where is all that money even coming from, right? And so ultimately, I think it's a, it's a tragic story of a leader who could not escape the shadow and kind of then became kind of a watered down version of, of the person he was he was trying to replace. You know, it's very, very interesting. And that was kind of, he presided over the ultimate, not demise, but GE today is just like a little, a little fraction of, of what it was, right? And it's, it's finally being broken up. The current CEO, yeah. Larry Culp, uh, late last year, said <clears> that <throat> finally, once and for all, GE is actually going to be separated finally undoing the vision that Welch had, which is to make this conglomerate that would be the company to end all companies, really. Yeah. And it, it, it's finally, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the inability of a succession of CEOs, because after Welch, uh, it was Flannery. Uh, after Flannery, it was Culp. No one could make it work. Because at the end of the day, as, as you alluded to, the stock was getting propped up with buybacks and dividends more than it was with organic, healthy earnings coming from its core businesses. Well, you know, part of the irony that uh, of Jack's legacy is that he's, I mean, how often, Raj, have maybe even you and I used the quote, you know, even Jack Welch says that shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world. And um, as if that gave it legitimacy from the, uh, you know, because it was Jack Welch who said this. Um, and I'm kind of embarrassed, you know, going through your book and now, you know, like, how could we ever use that phrase? But nonetheless, he became in retirement known for that at some level and even talking about it as if as if his history had never happened. And it just, you know, say a little bit about that Jack Welch and the Jack Welch who, you know, was, was on the ground leading the charge. In retirement, he engaged in what can only be described as a grand attempt to rewrite his legacy. It wasn't just that famous quote that he gave to the Financial Times where he said, shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world. Uh, but he also was recording podcasts and audiobooks about emotional intelligence. He started donning, you know, sweaters instead of pinstripe suits. And, and he went on and tried to fashion himself 
as sort of this benign guru of the management world, which we should talk about the degree to which academia, frankly, had a role in perpetuating this legacy. But he went and started his own business school, which is still up and running today, where you know students from around the world, and I've talked to some of them, they spend $50,000 to get an MBA with his name on it. So, so say a little more about that, about that legacy. How did that, what was that? Was that, uh, you know, his, his uh, what is it, his conversion that occurred at some point? Uh, wh- where, where did that come from? Because it seemed to come from a very, very unlikely place. Now, I also want to hold out that maybe he genuinely, you know, did have some kind of um, a moment where he, he was really sincere in his repenting. Well, what's your view on that, David? I don't believe he repented anything. Uh, to go back to that conversation earlier when we talked about his his bullying nature, um, I did not read this as an apology. I think he was reading the room and recognizing that in the wake of the financial crisis, there were real and legitimate concerns about shareholder primacy. And so he was saying what he thought people wanted to hear. But he could not point to one example in his career or in his actions after his time as CEO, where he would make good on a promise like that. He was the absolute, uh, the apotheosis of shareholder primacy. He was the one who, who did everything possible to elevate GE's share price at all costs and plowed record levels of the company's profits back into share buybacks, back into dividends, and who took the lion's share uh, of executive compensation for himself, setting a new benchmark for executive compensation that we're still, you know, completely in the thrall of today. When you look at some of these absolutely outrageous pay packages that public company CEOs get, so uh, I listen. I wasn't in his head, but there was very little to suggest, uh, not only in that conversation that he had with the FT, but in his subsequent statements about it, um, that he was sincere in his belief that uh, shareholders ought to take a back seat to other stakeholders, such as employees, communities, the environment, and so on. I think he was saying what he wanted people, what he thought people wanted him to hear. So there is a lasting legacy of pain, right, from Welsh. I mean, if you look at the impact, I think you have some very compelling numbers in there that worker pay, you know, had it kept pace, right, uh, with overall, uh, the overall economy, et cetera, that there would be workers would be averaging, I think, $102,000, right? And Welch was largely responsible for that curve getting flattened, right? While executive players skyrocketed. I think he's one of the uh, uh, few sort of billionaires who became a billionaire, not by founding a company, but by running a large American company. I think Michael Eisner uh, might be another one. His retirement package, it is shocking even to just read it, right? 12 country club memberships, a 737, and I know a, a consulting rate that equals his salary basically for the rest of in addition to all the other, you know, the, the actual pension that he got. I mean, it's, it's, it's just extraordinary, uh, the self-serving nature. I mean, that makes me feel like he's a narcissist, um, you know, sociopath at some level. And he's going to say there's no regret, there's no counting for his impact, and he will justify it as he did until his last day in many ways. And for the most part, he did. Um, I want to remind everyone, though, that this is a book about Jack Welch, and he is the man who I tell this story through. But this is ultimately not a story of one man. This is a story about a system. This is a story about how priorities and incentives change over the course of many decades, and how, yes, one man played an absolutely critical role, an instrumental role in making all that happen. But because it's not just one man, it's not enough to say, if only Jack hadn't did it, or if only we didn't have more people like Jack, because decades into this, we're now talking about uh, an economic system that reflects his values, expectations among analysts and investors, including institutional investors that perpetuate some of the deep inequities which he seized on and used to his own advantage. So we can talk about Jack all day long, and there's endless copy here, but we cannot forget that the reason he's still relevant 
is because the system he helped create is one we are all still living in and a part of to this day. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, we've done a pretty thorough job of trashing Jack Welch as a, as a man, a leader, a CEO, <laughs> a human being. Um, and I feel badly about that, actually, at some level. And um, and I guess so there, there's two questions for you, David. One is um, some redeeming qualities. What are some of the, you know, as, as you looked at Jack, what are what are a couple things that you look back and you sort of say, you know, yeah, let's balance this in terms of, of him as a human being. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, this is not about trying to dance on anyone's grave. Um, and I, what I just said is, is, is really at the heart of this book for me, Yeah, that this, yeah. this is a book, this is a book about a system as much, or even more so than it is about a man. When you look at the redeeming qualities he did have, which I'm not suggesting are ones we want to emulate now. I said it at the top of the show, he was incredibly sharp. He was an absolutely incisive strategic mind. He um, was a tireless worker. And by all accounts, he could really inspire excellence in people. Now, did he do that through fear and a certain amount of bullying? Perhaps. But there is no doubt that for a long time, he was able to um, get, get you know, some version of the best out of a lot of people. But there again, their definition of success was very much aligned with his. So you had Larry the knife, Bossidy, and you had John the cutter, tranny, you know, and then of course you had Nardelli who wrecked Home Depot and then went on. <laughs> Chrysler hires him after he almost destroys the Home Depot culture to turn them around. And, you know, and of course they all come in with a 50, $80 million package and they walk away with $160 million, you know, uh, settlement, uh, Stone Cipher, all of them. So, I mean, to me, Unlike Timothy, I don't have a lot of sympathy or empathy. I mean, you, you could be born intelligent. That's, you didn't create that, and you have to use that uh, to have a positive impact, and I don't think he did. I mean, to me, it's, it's almost, almost predominantly a, a negative legacy that he leaves behind uh, for all of us now to try to come out of and heal from. You know, I did want to share my encounter with, uh, with Jack Welch. Please. Around uh, 2005, I believe. So he had been retired a few years. He was married now to Susie Wettlaufer, who was the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. And uh, uh, Susie's sister was my neighbor in Lexington here in, in Mass. And they had a holiday party every December where they invited the neighbors. So that year, we got the invitation. I said, wow, I wonder if Jack Welch is going to show up to this uh, little shindig, you know. So we went there and for the first hour, he wasn't there. But then, then he came in. And, you know, he's very, very out front. He's like, ah, I'm Jack Welch. How are you? How are you? I mean, he's like, you know, working the room. And so uh, he came to me and I said, hi, nice to meet you. I told him about my book, Rule of Three, which is kind of reused, you know, that number one, number two, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I asked him because I was, I was writing Firms of Endearment and I was looking at all these companies and how they are viewed. And Walmart had been on the cover of Business Week uh, recently at the time. And it said, is Walmart bad for America? Right? And he talked about the fact that workers are paid very little. And they have to go on public assistance and get food stamps and all that. And Walmart's HR department actually helps them <laughs> apply for public assistance and that they squeeze suppliers and that, uh, you know, the main streets and little, little towns are getting hollowed out, et cetera, et cetera. So overall, and of course, they claim about you know, buy American, but most of their products are from China. So I said, what do you think about all this criticism that Walmart is getting? Uh, right now. And he said, well, I think Walmart is one of the greatest things. It's a great company. It's one of the best things about America. It's Walmart. But I said, well, what about all this criticism? You know, employees uh, are poorly paid, etc. I said, he said, well, they don't have a union, do they? I said, no. Well, that means that the employees are happy, right? Because if they were unhappy, they would form a union. I said, well, now that you say that, you know, Walmart is, is legendary for their strong anti-union stance. At the time, the only private jets in Walmart were owned by the anti-union team. And they had a hotline in every store where the manager, if he saw a couple of people in the corner whispering to each other, he could call and say, I think there might be some union activity going on here. And within hours, you know, that SWAT team would descend on that store and they would separate all the employees and talk to them about the evils of, of unions and, and so forth. And then when the Alabama the meat cutters in an Alabama store voted to join the National Meat Cutters Union. Uh, Walmart immediately shut down meat cutting in all their stores. And when a store in Ontario voted to unionize, they shut down that store, right? So I said, this is how Walmart curbs that. You know, so you can't say that employees are, are happy. 
So by this time, he was getting a little fed up of me. He said, you know what? You're just a bloody communist. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> and I was stunned for a minute, you know, and then I went and told my neighbor, Della, I said, your brother-in-law just called me a communist. And she said, oh, he calls all of us that, you know, so welcome, welcome to the club, you know. Wow. So I think that's the, uh, that's the mantra, right? If you don't buy in wholesale, you're a communist. And, and, and it, it speaks so directly to his inability to recognize the negative externalities of the business, right? He was able to compartmentalize in this ultimately truly toxic manner and simply not consider yeah. the effects that the company and his actions had on the outside world, be yeah. it individuals, be it communities, be it the environment. So David, last question here. Um... Having written the book, talked about the system, the man behind the system as an exemplar, where's the hope for you going forward? What, what are the things that as you look forward, you sort of say, and despite all that, here's a couple of things I'm hopeful about. Where's, let's end on the hopeful side. Yeah. There is no doubt that the whole ethos in corporate America has changed meaningfully in the last several years. And, and you uh, and this work that you all do with conscious capitalism has been a part of that shift. Uh, and whether it's conscious capitalism or stakeholder capitalism or B Corps, there is clearly a move afoot among many, not all, but many CEOs and boards of directors to start taking much more care about understanding the their impacts on all stakeholders. Now, is that enough? Not remotely. Our minimum wage is still woefully depressed across this country? Absolutely. Is there still enormous, enormous amounts of work to be done? No question. But when you look at the degree to which employees are engaged in trying to hold their leadership teams accountable, not only for political and social stands that the companies might take, but for their impact on the workers, when you see the growing pro-union movement, uh, not only at companies like Amazon, but throughout the media industry, where, where I spend my day, when you look at the degree to which companies and CEOs are taking very seriously net zero commitments and at least starting to put muscle and resources into uh, trying to reduce the carbon impact uh, and, and ultimately move towards a more sustainable future, that all gives me hope in a real way. Uh, to me, the concern is, 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 frankly, the pace of this change. Because for the last 50 years, it, the pendulum was swinging in one direction. And we got a lot, a lot of problems that we need to remedy. And there's no doubt the business is among the most impactful ways. And that things can move really very quickly, especially when incentives start to shift, especially when markets start to prioritize different, uh, different metrics. And we're starting to see glimmers of that. Um, but I still think there is a long, long, long way to go. And so I cite the examples of a couple companies in my book where workers are uh, getting a, a much larger slice of the pie, where uh, CEOs are taking real care to uh, clean up their supply chain, to take better care of their environment. But those, unfortunately, are truly the minority at this point. And there is uh, much, much more to be done. Well, thank you so much, David, for this wonderful book. Uh, once again, uh, for our listeners, it's The Man Who Broke Capitalism. And it's a very important book and a compelling read. So I strongly urge you to get that and, and, and let, let uh, other people know and your friends know about this book. Because I do feel, you know, I, was, I wrote to David a few weeks ago. It reminded me of, of Martin Luther nailing those things to the church, you know, saying this is, you know, the sort of the beginnings of that uh, Protestant movement. And I think this, this is a, a compelling document of that kind, because it's holding up a mirror, you know, to what we have all acquiesced to in some way uh, in the past, right, for those few decades, and, and where we need to go from here. So uh, I think this book is going to have a big, big impact, and it's going to open a lot of people's eyes. And, and help expedite the shift that we all want to see. So thank you again uh, for being with us, David. Thank you both so much and keep up the good work. And thank you, David. And thank you to our listeners for listening in on this podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast on whatever channel you're listening, please hit the subscription button and 
feel free to go over to the Apple iTunes and leave us a review and a star rating if you feel so moved. If you want to leave a comment for Raj or I, please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com. And on the website, there's at the bottom a little place where you can send us a note giving us your comments and thoughts. And finally, thank you to Tech Sounds for producing our show each week. We really appreciate your help. Thank you. And thank you to Technologically Monterey, where I am a professor and the Conscious Enterprise Center there, uh, which is also a co-sponsor of this podcast. Thank you all, and we'll see you next week.